0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Meredith Patterson, a software engineer and early pioneer of language theoretic approaches to secure development. We discuss the origins of language theoretic security, also known as LangSec, rigidity versus robustness, and using game theory to make security better for everyone. Enjoy the episode. All right, well, thanks for joining me today, Meredith. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start the same way I start with everyone else, which because there's so many paths in to security as uh, as a as a career, um, and and ask how you got started in this space and 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 a bit of your trajectory from there to here.
1: Well, I pretty much tripped and fell into it. Um, back in grad school, I was doing uh, I I did a master's degree in computational linguistics uh, at the University of Iowa, and while I was there. Um, I took a class from a formal language theorist in the computer science department. Um, he was tenured, and he basically went to the department and said, I want her for my student. Um, so all of a sudden, I was poached into, the, into a PhD program in computer science uh, doing formal language theory. And one evening, I was having dinner with another uh, fellow grad student who was doing security, um, and we were talking about SQL injection. So he explained to me, how um, it was possible uh, with some web applications or HTML forms to add additional phrases of SQL uh, in such a way that you could trick a database into executing arbitrary queries for you. And he was explaining to me that, you know, people try to whitelist or blacklist against uh, certain regular expressions to try to prevent this from happening. um, But it doesn't work terribly well. And I was like, well, that's kind of silly um, because SQL is a context-free language. You know, this was something that was readily evident from all the formal language theory I'd been doing. Um, So I said, why don't people try to whitelist against context-free expressions instead. And he was like, well, what would that possibly look like? And I was like, well, I can't really explain it over a dinner table, so I guess I'm just going to have to go home and write some code to do it, uh, you know, to do it and explain it that way. Uh, so I did. Uh, and that ended up turning into my into my very first ever Black Hat talk. Yeah, okay. So that was 2005. So, okay,
0: back up a little bit. We're going to get sure. back to here. But sure. you say... As you know, with formal language theory, and I'm going to guess a lot of people listening to this podcast might not know a lot about, they might not even know what language theory is. Um, so maybe give give us the, uh, I'm not in grad school for language theory description of what language theory is.
1: For sure. So... For, for the folks in the audience who did an undergrad degree in computer science, um, you probably had to take an automata theory class. you know, And it's it's the one class where you probably don't remember anything about it other than the fact that you had to do a whole lot of proofs and you couldn't really figure out what it had to do with writing programs in any more than the most theoretical possible sense. So this is the class where they explain to you what, for instance, a finite state machine is. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some set of states that the system can be in, and different inputs cause you to transition from one state to another. And a and a set of inputs is valid if it uh, if after reading in all of that input, uh, you end up in a state that's defined as an accept state, and otherwise it's defined as a rejection state. Um, so it turns out that this definition of a, of a machine of a formal automaton happens to correspond to the regular languages, like regular expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not the PCRE kind of regular expressions, though. You know, the the, pro, the pro-combatible regular expressions. Those, it, well, so what's, what's funny about those is, you know, per- Perl is one of those languages that, you know, that prioritizes convenience over, uh, over much of anything else. The, the motto of Perl is there's more than one way to do it. And so probably the most popular uh, Perl regular expression library, which has, uh, and, you know, its, its style of regular expression matching has actually extended to lots of other, you, you know, commonly used Unix tools like grep. It turns out that the class of grammar or, or class of language or class of automaton, the three are effectively equivalent. That actually recognizes the next more complex class of formal language, which is called the context free languages. Um, and those are basically regular languages that are allowed to recurse on themselves. One example of those is the language of balanced parentheses, like open paren, close paren. Right. That's a, that's a string in that language. Open paren, open paren, close paren, close paren. That's in the language too. Open paren, close paren, open paren, close paren. That's in the language. But if they don't balance out, then the string is not in, is is not in the language, and that language is context free. You can't actually recognize it with a uh, with a regular expression. And so SQL is actually the same way. It turns out because like you can embed queries into other queries.
0: Right. Okay. So you actually wrote some code back in when you were in grad school. So this is your first sort of demonstration of language theory and security. So that was your first black hat talk.
1: Right. Yeah. That, and that was and that was the first time that, you know, that I had seen that applied to you know, that, that, I, that I had seen, uh, you know, formal language theoretic principles applied to security because you know people were people were trying to look at you know practical ways like you know, machine learning based ways or whatever to uh, you know to try to to defend against injection attacks, and I went with the argument. Well, why not decide what you're willing to listen to, and reject anything else, which is effective. Which is essentially what you mean when you say I'm going to do blacklisting, uh, mm-hmm. or or I'm going to do whitelisting. If you're if you're doing blacklisting, you're saying this you know here's a list of things that I'm not going to listen to. And if you're doing whitelisting and you're saying, here's a list of the only things that, uh, that I'm willing to listen to. And the problem with trying to use a weaker language um, when you're trying to recognize strings in a more complex language is that it's never going to match 100%. It will always be possible to construct a malicious string if you're, if you're using too weak of a formalism to match against.
0: Right. But I mean, so wait, let me ask a question, because this is this is well beyond, you know, uh my my level of, of understanding um of of these things. So when you say, you know, you're gonna choose what to look at or choose what to not look at, how do you even do that, like the way that software is built now? Like, I mean you don't know the scope of everything, right? Um, you can if
1: it's been specified. So if you look at um if you look at pretty much any, um, you know, we, we we can stick with SQL because uh, you know because we've already started with it. Um, if you look at any implementation of SQL, um, you'll see that you know there's a parser in there first, you know, the, yep. which is the first part of input processing. Um, right. And there is and there is a grammar. For SQL, in fact, there's a there's a standard, there's a set of standards for the language which uh, which uh, which contain a formal grammar. Um, although I don't know of any implementation that actually fully implements all of them. Instead, they all have their own dialects. So one other kind of irritating consequence of this is uh, that say you know you can you can have well uh, let me let me let me back up and I'll deal with the irritating consequence later. Um, so if you have this formal grammar, then you can say. Say uh, you can you can for instance put a proxy in front of your web application and say okay I know that uh, I'm going to accept it, and we're, I'm just going to be I'm I'm going to give a very broad example here. This is actually not something you would you would want to do something better than this in practice. But kind of as a first approximation, one thing that you could say is all right. Well, I know that I don't want my users to be able to. Drop my you know, to to drop tables in my database. I don't want them to be able to uh, you know to to use these certain other high level commands. And so, I'll make it so that the only uh, commands that are even allowed in the dialect of SQL I'll accept uh, will be say like select and alter statements. You know, reading things and writing things. But if they start a query with you know, with drop, that expression is not going to be in the language that my proxy understands and my proxy will reject that you can essentially take a subset of the language and say all right i'm only going to accept this subset
0: okay so that does sound fairly simple and straightforward and yet i suspect as you as you allude it's more complicated than that and i'm also trying to get my arms around sort of how how pervasive or how common do you think this approach to security is in the industry um you know the there's pieces of it you're describing to me that sound very straightforward and and very you know fairly obvious but it seems like the language theory pieces behind it are possibly a lot harder
1: for people to get their arms around yeah so, it's a little me- frustrating because i'm able to explain I, I, when i when i try to explain it in in theory terms of this is why this is why this approach will always be right it seems to confuse people and yet you know i i know people who have Written about their experiences um, taking this kind of approach in practice, uh, like Zed, Zed Shaw, um, right? Intuited, intuited all of this independently, you know, years before uh, we even had the name language theoretic security. He's a he's a programmer who wrote um, a uh, a web server called Mongrel, mm-hmm. um, which has been uh, so the parser that he wrote for this. Um, he wrote it using a formal parser generator style, using a tool called Regal. And in fact, the essay that he wrote about it is called Regal State Charts. He started with a formally implemented HTTP parser um, and then built the rest of the web server around the parser. Turns out that this made the parser reusable, and so lots of other Ruby web servers um, are uh, are using the Mongo parser to this day. Right, Um, okay. And what he found is that, like, comparing it to Apache, like, he set up an Apache server basically as a front-end to a Mongol server and discovered that Apache let through 80% of the attacks that, uh, that Mongol just stopped cold. Hmm, okay. Sure, purely by virtue of having a formally correct parser. Just limiting what he was willing to accept uh, you know the the traffic he was willing to accept to HTTP requests that were strictly grammatical according to the grammar of HTTP was a huge win in the security department.
0: So, are there downsides to that though? Like, w- if 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 it were if it were that straightforward and that easy, I haven't asked the obvious question: Wouldn't everybody be doing it?
1: So, I think one of the biggest problems is tooling. Um, there are not a lot of Great um, parser generator tools available um, for languages that people really tend to use in, in practice. Um, most of the really good um, libraries for this are in you know functional languages that very few uh, like, actually
0: yeah, use. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. Well there, there's a starter right there.
1: Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you're in fintech, you're probably using Haskell, um, right. but not a whole lot of other places. Um, and, you know, C certainly has parser generators, um, you know, but they're pretty much all intended for uh, writing compilers and not very easy to adapt to the use case of I'm writing a network library or I'm writing a web application. Right. More modern applications. Yep. Right. Gotcha. Um Java is one uh, exception. There is a very uh, well maintained, uh, very mature parser generator library in uh, in Java called Antler. Um, and I, so, I don't actually work in security uh, day job wise. Um, I actually work in healthcare tech. Um, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, but security is kind of a it's a bit of a concern there. Security is absolutely a concern there. But I mean, I've also, I, I work in natural language semantics. I'm at I'm Nuance Communications. Um, and you know, one of the things that uh, my team does is we ingest an awful lot of medical ontologies. And the organizations that release these ontologies, like uh, the American Medical Association and the World Health Organization, make small changes to the format year on year as they, as, as they update stuff. And this turns out to be utterly nightmarish to maintain if you're, uh, if you're basically, you know, writing your ingestion code to, you know, grab a piece of text, do something with it, grab another piece of text, do something with it incrementally. I've been working on a reimplementation uh, using Antler, uh, and it's gone much, much, much more smoothly.
0: So um I wanna I wanna come back to how you ended up doing what you're doing now. There's a piece of the story in there, perhaps that, that that's that we'll that we'll get back to. But the when you're talking about I'm actually just I'm hooked on this fact that you're saying they keep changing the format. Um what what's going on there? So these these medical organizations are releasing on like ontological I don't know if it's or the
1: databases but lists of terms and definitions of terms essentially is that what yeah like on? one of yeah like the uh, one of the ones that comes out of the world health organization is the international classification of diseases okay. the icd and icd-10 codes
0: and your organization is what it, what it so you're helping ingest this information and pass it along to, to it goes it,
1: it goes into a product
0: that okay. um gotcha.
1: unfortunately unfortunately i can't go into a lot more detail <laughs> than that that's okay <laughs> we, we can stop
0: it there that's fine i'm just i'm um so how you, you've been doing a lot of work in language theory. It sounds like in your career that's led to something where you're not necessarily focused on security as much.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's in a, in a lot of ways. I I'm, I'm coming to realize that you know, working from a uh, from a formal specification um, and having code that clearly mirrors the specification gives you a lot of wins, um, not just in terms of security, but in terms of general robustness. Dan Geer, uh, who we actually had as our keynote speaker at the at the second uh, IEEE workshop on language theoretic security, gives a definition of security uh, that I that I absolutely love. He says it's the absence of unmitigatable surprise, and I think that robustness falls under this definition as well. You know, you uh, you know, part of security is making sure that, uh, you know, your code is hardened against malicious input. If you look at, you know, the OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities, for instance, the vast majority of them are going to be input vulnerabilities of one way or another. And so in LineSec, we argue that the way to, uh, to avoid these kinds of vulnerabilities is to be definite about what input you are willing to accept and reject everything that doesn't fit that.
0: So is that a lo- is that a degree of Specificity or possibly rigidity, as viewed from the development side of things. I mean, is that is that where there might be some tension there?
1: Um, I I get that impression, yeah. Um, which which is a little frustrating. I mean, because a lot of the time, um, you know, the 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 most rigidity you need is just to say, okay. Uh, valid input is any you know any input in this encoding right I can't tell you you know in uh, from databases to web apps to, to browsers i mean there are all kinds of uh, vulnerabilities that arise just out of incompatible encodings um you know it's it's not a matter of rigidity for rigidity's sake it's mm-hmm. um, it's a matter of having of, of having all behavior be defined um, and and this is honestly one reason I think why you know functional languages lend themselves better to this approach because it's easier to be exhaustive about inputs a lot of the time the compiler will warn you but you know the good news is that um, we are starting to see system language, systems languages moving in this direction particularly uh-huh. with, with particularly with rust rust yeah 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 there's a library called Nam um, written by a guy in France named Jeffrey Kupri um, which is a it's, it's a parser generator written in the Rust macro language. It is blindingly fast. Um, it generates yeah you know, it, it generates correct code. Um, it's starting to be used in uh, in Rust systems libraries. I've heard rumors that uh, that FFmpeg is starting to pick it up. Um, so I'm I'm very excited about that fact because if if we can start to get low level systems code focusing on correctness. I mean, the point at which LangSec really became serious was in 2009 when uh, Len Sassman and Dan Kaminsky and I um, started probing um, SSL libraries, uh, OpenSSL, Crypto API from Microsoft, and um, NSS from Mozilla. And we were able to, you know, just by playing fast and loose with the grammar of, of SSL certificates we were we were able to forge um, dozens of certificates that we shouldn't have been able to, to, to get you know with with valid signatures from from certificate authorities on them nice Ugh. yeah <laughs> yeah I mean we stopped when we got bored <laughs> and, and, oh, good place and, and and then we put out a paper in financial crypto 2010 um, and you know we got the, the we got those bugs remediated, but they're, you know, until we have provably correct implementations of these kinds of, uh, you know, these, these kinds of mission critical security protocols, we're going to keep seeing bugs arising out of people playing fast and loose with grammar. Yeah. So I want to come back to something. I keep doing this.
0: I, uh, hopefully, it doesn't drive you crazy because you say something and then we kind of keep going and then something kind of caught my uh, my eye. No problem. And so, and I also, the Rust thing's interesting just because I've noticed um, a pickup in that amongst a lot of uh, sort of DevOpsy Ops-style. Chef is a really big fan of Rust now, and there are CLIs written in that. Um, oh, brilliant.
1: So- I hadn't heard that. That's wonderful news.
0: Yeah. So, it's interesting to see that you, you mentioned that. I'm going to have to go chase that up a little bit more. Um, that was a total aside. What I was going to try to get back to was incentives and why certain groups of people do certain things one way and certain people do certain things other way, you know, and so... From a security perspective, from a um, you know trying to understand all of your inputs and we have control over that, I it totally makes sense what you're saying to me, and that's like sort of people from a security team or mindset are incented, you know, to try to approach the problem that way. And I still have this sense or this feeling, right, that like development teams, they're not they're not incented towards the same things, right? I mean, you sort of have this disconnect between. What they're driving towards, and what a security teams driving towards, and what the inputs to those are, you know, and the inputs from the business have really strong implications for what development teams do, and like what languages they choose, and frameworks, and everything. And I know that as part of some of the the language theory stuff that you did um, in grad school, you got pretty deep into game theory,
1: right? Yeah, I had a I had a class uh, from a visiting professor on that, and it really kicked off, uh, you know really kicked off my interest, um, particularly because you know. It, it it was confusing to me as well, you know. After I gave that that Black Hat talk in 2005, you know, why people weren't like, you know, immediately leaping on this as, you know, the the obvious right thing to do. Um, and, you know, i've I've come to I've come to realize over time that even if there is, you know, an incentive alignment between development and security, um, to you know to to adopt a new development methodology, there's still an upfront cost um, associated with learning a new methodology. And, um, you know, know, tooling also affects that space um, because um, if you're a business, um, you need employees and you want to be sure that you can draw from a decently sized pool, right? So, you know, on the one hand, it might be a swell idea to Build your your hot new application in Haskell but yeah. you're you kind of, you' you're, you're you're slashing the the number of devs you have available by probably a factor of a hundred
0: that is a that is a stark reality of, of of the technology world right now which is an interesting one um, and, and and so back let's let's tie this to the game theory side of this then um, and yeah. maybe again uh, I have my own understanding of uh, a very limited, set of understanding about game theory um i certainly didn't study it you know but it's it's basically math from my understanding it's mathematical models of, of conflict or cooperation between intelligent parties let's say or you know, right. intelligent decision makers and there's a lot of loaded words in there right like conflict in- intelligent rational um yeah, and I, I mean, mean
1: in, you know, in practice, most of the simulations that you see done in, um, you know, like Axelrod's uh, evolutionary game theory tournaments, um, you know, you have agents. Um, and that might be the least loaded word there, agents. Um, you know, but, the, but these agents are bots. Um, you know, they have a hard-coded set of principles about um, how they will act and a hard-coded set of principles about how they will update their principles. And everything beyond that is deterministic but chaotic. Right.
0: So what I'm really interested in is how this relates to again tra- drawing this back to teams, right? Security teams, development teams, business teams. You know, it seems like you you get into this state where no one's going to change what they do. Right? You know, and I mean, I don't know if this is truly related to, um, the, you know, the, I don't know how many people are familiar with the concept of Nash equilibrium, right? That you can get to in game theory, but like, where no player, where no player has anything to gain by changing their strategy unilaterally, right? You're stuck. Exactly. There. Yeah. Um, not my Nash, by the way. Um, I have a different John Nash for grandfather, um, but people ask me that all the time too. It's, I love to bring it up, but wrong Nash. But, anyways, I mean, so talk to me about that. Like, does that does that a, a reasonable way of talking about some this disconnect that you can see between
1: teams working for the same organization i'm not sure i have anything more to add beyond <laughs> that but but i mean my, my friend quinn norton loves to say that it's really difficult to pull out of a tailspin from the inside mm. um and, and part of that i think is that it can be difficult to really see what the landscape of payoffs is you know you make predictions about what the payoffs of you know various moves you could make various decisions that that you might take you know based on your expectations and your confidence in those expectations essentially you know your expectations and your confidence in your expectations dictate your dictate the strategy that you play and
0: well I mean at some point you have to change the game or at least the payoffs right
1: right yeah so you can lower the cost of adoption, um, or you can uh, or you can alter the optics. You know, if uh, if you can point to success stories. And actually, there's one talk that I'm super looking forward to at the conference that I think is going to be one example of such a success story, um, which is the uh, secure NTP talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they got rid of a tremendous amount of attack surface in NTP just by carving off large amounts of legacy code and and this is brilliant um, like i i haven't looked into you know where they where they are in terms of you know in terms of the quality of their parsing but you know that might very well be something i can, I can contribute um, you know but i think as we start to see more success stories of people just you know using basic principles of you can you know you don't process what you don't accept you, know, you don't right. you know. one of the other things that Zed Shaw found out um, in the in, in that attack study that he did with Apache and mongrel is that the vast majority of malicious traffic is simply ungrammatical. Um, so you're not just uh, you not, you're not just protecting yourself from attacks you're also um, you know you're not wasting CPU on um, on requests that were never going to go anywhere in the first place um, unless they were going to go someplace bad. Right.
0: So uh, you uh, just so, so listeners know, um, I, I neither uh, paid nor prompted uh, Meredith to say what she just said, but I, it always makes me giddy um, because the, the the security conference of which you're program committee member, which is happening in New York, that what you're talking about is so very much what we're after, right? There's there there's always this you know very cliche bit about security work is 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 in the shadows and it's silent and you know you only hear about it when shit goes sideways um but there's a lot of successful wins happening out there that we that are like the ntp stuff that that are this stuff's not just it's critical um and it's super important to be sharing those and highlighting those and doing exactly what you're saying which is like other people can look at that and go oh actually this isn't some gigantic you know, trade-off we necessarily have to make in our organization. There's small wins to be had, and then you, you can build on those small wins over time. Um I mean, so-
1: everything relies on time. Even more stuff than relies on TLS relies on time. Yeah. So, you know, as as we start to as we start to clean up these just absolute most basic utility services that, you know, that literally everything uses, um, you know, we're gonna see the waterline rise.
0: So at the end of every podcast, I ask everyone the same question um, because I think that people working in security, whether currently or previously, like yourself, um, often the successes uh, and go un- unrecognized uh, far too often. Um, and sometimes they're fairly silent or or not as recognizable as, as others. But uh, we are of the opinion that everybody involved in in this work uh, has some kind of superpower. And so I am curious what your superpower is. Pattern matching. Pattern matching. Okay. Tell me more about it.
1: Well, so, I mean, part of it, I think, this is going to sound a little strange, but there's, a, there's an extent to which um, I, I suspect it stems from my autism. Um, I mean... I've I've learned all of the you know the social skills that I've learned basically by you know pattern matching what people do and inferring larger patterns out of that. Um, that's also how I learned math. Um, it's probably how I learned to read. Um, it's how I learn other languages. Um, it's just kind of. How all of that works, you know. My last job that was, you know, officially in the security field was actually um, at a company that was doing machine learning on system logs in order to, uh, in order to try to find um, malicious traffic. Um, and yeah, you know, that's that's just the kind of stuff I live for. I love being able to find the the larger, deeper structure that's hidden inside what appears to be a bunch of noise, and one of the, the great things and the terrible things at the same time about the, the explosion of the tech field, you know, everybody can code now, this is great, but it also means that everybody can make terrible mistakes that put people at risk. But the really interesting thing to me is that the more of that you see, you start to see clusters of mistakes that people make. And the more that we can, the more that we can identify those, um, hopefully the more that we can automate away the the problems that people unintentionally introduce you know spell checkers were a wonderful thing for office programs and in software development you know mostly that's type checkers but you know we're also starting to you know we're also starting to see test automation expand into okay well how do we how do we find problems that people don't know to look for you know, automated testing tools like QuickCheck and Hypothesis are headed in that direction. And I think as we start to see, you know, more of more of a fusion with you know, with data science in the security world, we'll we'll start to we'll start to see even more interesting patterns.
0: I love that, partly because I didn't have to tease it out of you like I've had to with some people. I'm having this evil thought of like, you know, how they have like the big blue like the chess games and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Have some I not like human computer pattern matching competitions. I think that would be. <laughs> Crazy cakes. It sounds like you would win.
1: So I've never actually, pl- I have yet to actually play in one of the uh, in one of the Turing Test competitions. Yeah, but someday I might do that. That it would be interesting to see if I could write a system that could fool people into into thinking it was human.
0: But even more than like the Turing Test, I
1: mean that's basic pattern matching, right? I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but the guy who whose program won the competition, the program was actually very simple but it's social engineered people. It pretended to be a 15 year old Ukrainian boy. So that explained the bad grammar and the sometimes nonsensical questions, at least in the minds of the people who were evaluating it sufficiently well that they thought it was human. Hmm.
0: Interesting, but not for the reasons you'd expect. The, the sort of social engineering side was what did it. Right, yeah. I'm gonna have to go look yeah.
1: that up. The author was able to take advantage of people's you cuz know, cuz what what is it what is a bias if not an overactive pattern matching filter i mean in machine learning that's literally what it means if you are overfitting if you're overfitting to your data then your classifier is biased and this program that emulated a, a 15-year-old ukrainian boy took advantage of the evaluators biases about you know what somebody's grammar and somebody's nationality says about them as a person. (laughs) We could have a whole other podcast um, about just that. Yes, we could. Yes, we could. (laughs) All right, but we'll leave it right there.
0: Perfect. I totally want to end on that note. So um, thank you so much for joining me today. I think you blew my brain up a little bit. I have about a million notes on things I have to go follow up on now. Um, Sweet. But um, this was great. And thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash, and Meredith is at M A R A D Y D D. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.